Ah, there you are. I wondered where you had wandered off to. You must be careful into which of these rooms you stray. This castle can be a veritable maze if you do not know it well enough. Here, I brought this wine up from the cellars. It is an older vintage, laid down by my grandfather. You are interested in this painting? I'm finally done, no? His name was Count Vladimir Rishalev, and he was a deeply disturbed man. They say he was possessed by a spirit so malignant, so terrible, that it caused him to go mad and devour the flesh of other men. It is said, even in death, his soul was too evil, even for hell. So he was trapped inside of this painting to await final judgment at the end of the world. Of course, you must say, it cannot be true. But sometimes, if you cast a glance towards that painting in the dead of night, you can see the eyes move slowly. <laughs> Things are not always what they appear to be. Welcome to Dark Rose Fiction Episode 2. Before we get back to the mysterious castle, I want to thank Mr. Russell Burt for his wonderful feedback and for anybody listening to this who hasn't listened to his podcast uh, come let me whisper it is a similar concept um, a collection of, of dark stories um, infinitely better than mine so check check it out at rlbert.com uh, you can subscribe to his podcast there, and I have the link up on darkrosefiction.blogspot.com if you want to check that out. Alright, uh, I don't want to keep you hanging, so why don't we get back to the mysterious castle and today's story, Maneater. You know, it comes to mind. I think there may be a story in the book of a man who was driven to madness by a strange spirit similarly to our friend here. Come. We can continue to read in the Great Hall. The fire will drive away the night's chill. Ah, <sighs> nothing like cool wine in a roaring fire, eh? Now, to find that story, I think it is... Ah, here we are. I must warn you first. Do not listen if you are easily offended by violence, for this story may become graphic. Let's begin. Story 2. Maneater. Pete Smallcreek knew he was lost. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he could tell deep down to his very core that there was little or no hope of him finding the trail before the sun set, leaving him to cope blindly with the elements. Pete was 100% Cree Indian, a fact evidenced by the sharp arch of his wide nose and his broad and character-filled face. The silky black hair that shot out from under his wide-brimmed hat hung loose and fell, splayed across the shoulders of the deer-hide vest he wore over a checkered flannel shirt. Colored beads and an eagle feather bobbed on the ch his chest as he hurried in what he believed to be the general direction of the old game trail that would lead him back to his jeep. His 358 caliber rifle clutched tightly in his dark weathered hands. 
Pete's brother had gone off the trail. He knew that much. But that was two months ago, and he did not find his way back either. Joe's small creek had traveled up into the Canadian wilds early in August to catch the beginning of moose season. Hunting was a passion with Joe. A part of his soul went into every bullet fired from his prize Smith & Wesson. Pete did not share his brother's love for a perfect kill and a better trophy, so he had opted to stay home. Although this disappointed Joe, he soon found another hunting partner in Jeremy Soaring Eagle, a local boy who lived nearby on the reservation. Jeremy was not Joe's best friend, but he was company. After all, it was very unwise to venture into the Canadian woods alone. If only Pete had remembered that. He checked his watch, the ominous hand already inching towards 6.30 as the shadows grew deeper in the hollows between the trees. Of course, he had brought all the gear he would need to survive in the cold woods for a few days, but all that gear was back in the jeep. The wind rustled in the leaves, and Pete's hands clenched around the barrel of his rifle. After what he had seen on that rock an hour ago, his nerves were keenly on edge. Pete didn't quite know what he was expecting to find, coming into the woods in search of his brother. When he stumbled across the remains of Joe's old campsite, there was a glimmer of hope. The ashes of the nearly month-old fire were scattered by the winds and by animals that had passed through the campsite, but there were still the clear impressions in the earth of tent pegs, footprints, and more. The stain of a dry, metallic-smelling substance marred the center of the clearing near the fire pit, and the distinct impression of a body dragged from the site cut a trail into the brown bracken that surrounded the sheltered clearing. Pete had followed the trail. Carefully following the telltale marks of broken bushes, bent grass, and long-dried blood deeper into the imposing forest, he soon came to a wide open area of hills marked with enormous glacier boulders overlooking a small lake. The reflections of the stiletto-pointed pines jutted down into the endless blue sky like dark teeth. There was not a ripple, not a single interruption of the picturesque serenity. For a moment, he forgot what had brought him to this quiet corner of no man's land. There was only the scent of the pines, the chilling stillness of the blue waters, the cool breeze floating off of the lake. There was a muted splash at the far end of the body of water, and he caught a glimpse of something dark brown in color wallowing out of the water at the far bank. Whatever it was, was massed in the shadow of the trees, so Pete could only make out its color, but not its exact shape. It seemed about as tall as a man as it vanished into the brush and shadow. Probably a moose, he thought. These woods were rampant with the massive cousin to the white-tailed deer, the native game animal of his home state, Michigan. Pete had seen one standing at the peak of a hill, overlooking the forest as he drove towards his brother's projected hunting ground. The monolithic animal had disinterestedly watched him pass. Its proud head and protruding lump of a muzzle held high, the wide-spreading antlers perched majestically above the imposing skull. The distinctive cry of a vulture drew Pete's gaze to his left. Down the bank from where he stood, a trio of the carrion fowl circled above an especially large boulder that jutted out into the lake, interrupting the thin sandy strip of shoreline and encircled with cattails. There were trails of some dark liquid that had dried into a filmy crust running down the boulder on the side facing across the water, and a crumpled shape lay upon the top. Against his better judgment, 
Pete started towards the boulder, as a sense of foreboding swept over his mind. The boulder was large, and slanted on one side, creating a kind of ramp leading up to what would have been an impressive outlook over the lake under more fortuitous circumstances. At the moment, however, the scene was more grisly than scenic. A trail of something that couldn't be anything but dry blood led up the rock to where a dark yet unmistakable shape lay prone to the elements. Flies and gnats whirring in the air as the turkey vultures whirled overhead, casting their orbiting shadows in a disturbing halo around the body of Jeremy Soaring Eagle. Pete felt sick. He leaned over the edge of the rock, vomiting into the bushes on the side of the boulder. Jeremy was splayed out on his back, the fingers of his decomposing hands frozen by a death grip as they clawed uselessly at the cracks in the boulder. Blood had poured from the gaping hole that constituted his chest cavity, staining the top of the rock dark crimson as the pearly white remains of his splintered ribs jutted out from the threadbare remains of what had once been a blue checkered shirt, now bleached by the stun and stained with red. The dried remains of his organs lay splayed across his legs like some kind of twisted loincloth, and his eyes were only black holes in his terror-stricken face. Pete approached the body slowly. The smell was wretched. The combined scent of rotting flesh, blood, and human waste in an overpowering olfactory symphony. Pete vomited again, losing more lunch than he thought he had eaten. The acidic gorge flowed from his body in two gushing bursts before his stomach stilled, and he continued to scale the rock, holding a red and bandana in front of his mouth and nose, doing what little he could to mask the oppressive scent. Jeremy had been violently disemboweled in a most ugly fashion, and at first glance, Pete assumed it had to be the work of a mad bear or a cougar. There were any number of animals capable of dealing the damage he was surveying, but a closer examination proved something deeply more chilling. There were a number of visible slashing marks on the body that could have been administered by claws, but Pete thought differently as he peered down into the open chest cavity and saw the remains of a smoothly sanded deer antler handle protruding from the hole. Pete reached forwards, still keeping the bandana pressed tightly against his mouth and nose with the other hand as he drew the object from Jeremy's body. Just as he had expected, the broken blade of a knife followed the handle out of the wound. The knife had been Joe's most prized possession a knife handed down from his great-grandfather. Pete knew that Joe would never have let anyone use that knife while he was still living. Pete shivered, and the knife dropped from his loose fingers, falling with a clang to the slanted surface of the rock and sliding down into the bracken and brush at the base. Pete turned, his eyes brimming with hot tears, and he ran from the place, stopping only to lift the carved bear totem that hung around Jeremy's neck. The moldering cord on which the totem had hung broke away easily enough, and Pete thrust the carved bear into his pocket as he scrambled down the rock. When he returned to the village, if nothing else, at least he could tell Jeremy's parents that his soul was at peace. Making sure to avoid the trail of blood, he ran. He didn't know how long or how hard, but he stopped when he was sure that that rock was far behind. That had been an hour ago. And during that hour, he had done nothing but kick himself for a fool. He already had little or no idea in which direction his jeep lay, and running like an idiot into the woods had only made things worse. Now, 
As the sun drifted lazily to the far side of the globe, Pete shivered. If he was lost all night, the odds of him finding the truck in the morning would be slim at best. He had to get out of here. All right, he said to himself. Just stop and get your bearings. He paused, leaning back against a tree. If the sun was setting behind him, then that meant that he was facing east. His brother's camp had been west of the jeep, hadn't it? Or was it further north? He couldn't remember. As he tried to mentally retrace his steps, he began to feel aware of a strange crawling sensation along the back of his neck. There was something different about the woods. Something had drastically changed in the last fifteen minutes, and he could not quite put his finger on what it was. He held his breath, peering into the gray hollows between the towering trees. It was then that it struck him, the quiet of it all. Only a few moments ago, birds had been singing in the trees, and the faint song of tree frogs could be heard echoing out of the distance. But now, there was nothing. It was eerie, the stillness of it all, like every living thing in the world had vanished besides him. But no, that was not entirely true either. He was slowly becoming aware of a presence besides his own, something or somebody that was nearby in the forest, watching him. He whirled around, rifle held at the ready, but there was nothing. He breathed heavily as he slowly stepped in a circle, sweeping his darting eyes across the visible woods in a wide arc. Although he would not become aware of it until later, he had been fingering a trinket that hung below his shirt, a gift from his grandfather, a silver bullet. Carry it with you, he had commanded as Pete loaded the jeep's cab with his camping equipment when he began his search for his brother. The Wintico lurks in the deep woods. Pete's grandfather was the closest thing the reservation had to an old-time medicine man. As such, he was an advocate of all the old-time traditions as well as superstitions. The Wentico, sometimes called the Wendigo, was a legend of the northeastern native tribes dating many generations back. As his grandfather pressed the silver bullet into his grandson's hand, Pete tried to remember the stories the old man had told him as a boy. As best he could remember, the Wendigo was a cannibalistic spirit that entered men and drove them mad, transforming them into giant beasts with icy hearts that could only be pierced by a silver bullet. But it isn't true. Just an old folk tale, he tried to tell himself. But he was forced to wonder what had become of Joe, and why he had found his knife in the body of a dismembered man. It was too chilling to even consider. He felt the presence again, closer this time. Something rustled in the bushes to his left, and he turned, thrusting the gun out before him, as though he expected a monster to burst from the foliage. But it was not a monster that emerged like a bolt of gray lightning from a row of wild thorn bushes. It was a gray squirrel, a large acorn gripped tightly between its yellow teeth. The creature emerged in a flash and flew past his legs and up the trunk of a nearby fir tree. Pete was startled, and in his surprise he pulled the trigger of the gun, discharging a single explosive bang into the tense air. Birds by the hundreds, it seemed, burst from the thick canopy in a fluttering swarm, and Pete watched them go with amazement. They had been there the whole time, and yet they did not make a sound. It was, in fact, something else's turn to make a sound. From somewhere nearby, within a mile of his position at least, a cry echoed up from what seemed like the very bowels of the earth. It was long, hollow, inhuman, and angry. 
an animal cry of a most base nature. A sharp chill ran throughout Pete's body as he stood silent, watching as the last clear rays of light began to disappear. He was fingering the silver bullet again, running his fingers over the cool, hard lump beneath his flannel shirt. Despite the chill of the early October weather in the air, he was beginning to sweat. Beads of liquid stood out on his forehead, and the dark patches of perspiration beneath his arms were beginning to spread. I have to find the car, he breathed. Slowly turning and making his way over a low stone ledge and deeper into the woods, hoping that his internal compass would direct him the right way. He had heard stories of men wandering, lost for months in the northeast woods. As the shadows of night began to creep up throughout the trees, he came upon what looked like a road running between two large rocks. It looked vaguely familiar, but he could not remember which direction he had passed through before, or if he had passed through at all. His line of sight was growing more and more limited, and he had twice tripped over fallen logs which he could not see before he came to another large rock, which he seemed to recognize. Pulling a weak penlight from his pocket, he directed it towards the boulder and was rewarded with the sight of a lightning-bolt-shaped limestone deposit running through the crack of the boulder, a distinctive symbol he had marveled over when he had passed it before. From here, it was only a short walk in one direction to the lake, where he found... Jeremy. He had almost forgotten the grisly sight. The bear totem in his pocket felt a little heavier. His brother's camp was also along the old deer trail, and more importantly, so was his jeep. As he turned in the direction he was now sure would take him back to his vehicle, his foot tread upon a dry branch that cracked with a heavy snap. Almost in reply, a gruff animal snort sounded from somewhere above Pete's head. Pete looked up, aiming his penlight in the direction of the noise. Oh my god. Two yellow eyes in a balefully deformed face glowered at him from the bushes atop the rock. Crooked teeth jutted at uneven angles from a pair of puffy, sallow lips, dripping with free-flowing saliva. The skin was pale and sickly, almost yellow in color, like a faded piece of paper, and dark hair hung in greasy tangles from the blotchy scalp. Pete was running before he was even aware that he had moved from the spot. Behind him, the Wendigo, for that was what it was, what else could it be, made a soundless pursuit. But Pete did not need to hear it. He could feel it. He could feel those lifeless, staring eyes boring holes in him, staring into the darkest corners of his soul. His booted feet pounded hard, propelling him towards the campsite, towards what? Escape? Would he be safe if he ran long enough? Would he even be safe in the jeep, assuming he could even find it in the dark? The sudden sensation that the Wendigo had slackened in its pursuit caused Pete to deny everything his wiser self screamed for him to do, and turn, slowing from a run into a brisk trot, and then to a walk. There was nothing, just the crushing dark of the woods. In a way, that was more disturbing. That same feeling of a malignant presence that had pervaded him ever since the birds had fallen silent still hung over his head, and he clenched the wooden stock of the rifle tighter with his sweat-slicked palms. The feeling was still there, and so he was sure was the Wendigo. He began to run again, but not a headlong dash this time, a controlled sprint, 
shooting the occasional glance over his shoulders to assure himself that there was no foul monster on his tail. In doing so, his foot became suddenly snagged on some kind of line, and he fell forward onto his chest. The rifle in his hands discharged with a cracking flash. It was a thick cord that had snagged his foot, the kind used in the pitching of tents. He had stumbled back upon his brother's campsite. Thank God, he whispered to the darkness. The low, moaning cry of the Wendigo sounded somewhere uncomfortably close by, and Pete cautiously rose to his feet. Now, the car would be about a thousand feet to his right. If he could make it there, make it to the jeep, he would be safe. The sound of cracking branches from about fifty feet to his left added haste to the steady sprint, and before he knew it he was bursting into the clearing on the side of the old road where he had parked his jeep that morning. He collapsed against the jeep's door, breathing heavily as he fumbled for the keys in his pocket. They weren't there. He stared through the window of the jeep, his heart pounding wildly as the moonlight glinted off of the small ignition key that lay on his leather seat behind a locked door. The wind whooshed suddenly, and something large and black flew overhead, landing with a thud on the trunk of a tree. The superhuman ability of the deranged creature was astounding to witness as it turned and dropped from the mighty oak and landed on the dirt road. Pete lowered his gun towards the hulking shape in the shadows and fired four times, emptying the rifle's magazine into the monster's chest. It was an easy target, for the monster's heart of ice glowed a pale blue and could be seen beating through the papery skin. Just like the alien in that Spielberg movie, Pete may have thought, had he not been near to wetting himself with terror. As the monster approached slowly, paying no attention to the bullets that had ripped through its heart with no effect, Pete's one instinct was to bring his hand to his chest. There, under his shirt, the silver bullet seemed to pound with his racing heart. Pulling the bullet from his collar and tearing it from the cord on which it hung, he rammed it into the chamber of the gun. It was too small, and not the right shape, but he had no other choice. As the Wendigo's slow, lurching walk turned into a lupine sprint, he took careful aim and pulled the trigger. There was a bright white flash as the bullet erupted from the barrel and burst through the icy heart like a laser-guided ball of flame. The Wendigo's cry echoed in the night air as it sunk to the earth, its hulking body contorting and collapsing in on itself until it fell with a thud to the dirt road. Pete smashed in his rear window with the butt of the rifle and drew out a heavy-duty flashlight, which he switched on and pointed at the spot where the Wendigo lay. But it was the Wendigo no more. In a way, he had suspected this ever since he found the body on the rock, but tears of surprise still sprang into his eyes. His search was over. Joe's small creek lay with his naked body spread eagle on the dirt road. There were no marks on his body, save for the searing hole in his left breast, left by a silver bullet. That was Maneater. And I've always wanted to do a Wendigo story, ever since I knew about the uh, Native American legend of the Wendigo, Cannibal Wood Spirit, and this uh, podcast gave me the opportunity to do it. I hope you enjoyed it. I found that there were a couple of redundancies in my grammar, but other than that, I think this one went better than the last one. Um, I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. 
you can email me at fishy27 at hotmail.com or you can post a comment on the blog at darkrosefiction.blogspot.com. As always, the sound effects I used in our introduction are from ilovewavs.com and pacdv.com. Uh, stop by the blog anytime you want. There are some fun links to some great sites. And uh, keep checking in. I posted, I believe, a couple of days ago that I'm going to be doing two of these stories a month. I think I can keep up with that pace. Um, and I hope you stick around because I've, I've written most of the next story and it's kind of interesting. Not quite as dark as the rest. Well, maybe. We'll see. Uh, this is John Newman saying so long for now and stay tuned in a couple weeks for Mice and Men right here on the Dark Rose Fiction Podcast.